read. Brilliant, let's pray again. Our Father God, we uh, thank you for your words. Thank you for all parts of it, uh, that they are useful for us, even as Christians, in showing us the Lord Jesus and shaping our lives. Please would you do those two things this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Christians are called to live radically distinctive lives. That affects every area of our lives. So that affects the way that we use our time, the way we use our money, our sexuality, uh, the language that we use, our our thought life. It's in fact to affect every single area of our lives. They are to be distinct, distinctive, living for the Lord. Now, if you're a Christian, we, we, we know this. Uh, but even if you're looking into Christian things, well, I want you to know this. I want you to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It results in a hugely changed life. But our thinking in this can get very muddled. Uh, maybe think of it a bit like this. This is, uh, if it comes up, a picture of, excuse the pronunciation any Welsh people, um, Kribgoch. Uh, can you go back to num- number one? Uh, there you go. So this is a path um, or, or that goes up towards Snowdon. It's a much more interesting path than the normal ones you do. I've done it a couple of times. Uh, but the, the thing about it is, basically, it's this very narrow path which has steep drops off either side. Uh, and my, like many areas of our Christian lives, there, there, I think there are two ways in which we can fall off the path, as it were. First one is is that we end up thinking about how we live our lives is the deciding factor for how God views us. Okay, so if I live a good enough life, do enough good things, well then God is going to be pleased with me. Uh, Or even as Christians, well, you know, if I'm living that distinctive life, if my life really is that different, well then God is going to be pleased with me. Whereas actually if my life isn't going so well and I'm blending in and not doing those things and doing those things, well then God is displeased with me. On the other side of the cliff, I guess, will be where we think, well, you know, it doesn't really matter how we live our lives because, well, Jesus has saved me. We're saved by grace, not by anything we can do, as Andrew explains in in his lead. We're not saved by anything that we can do. We're saved by the Lord Jesus as a work on the cross. And so it doesn't really matter if I sin more because, well, Jesus paid for them. Two ways in which we might fall off that cliff. Now, if you're a Christian here, you probably wouldn't ever dream of saying it so crassly. But that kind of thinking can creep in. And the feast of unleavened bread will help us keep firmly on that path. Really? Really? This feast? Yeah, really. I believe it will. If you're here for the first time, off the back of Holiday Club, could you go to the blank one, sorry, the blank screen. Uh, If you're here off the back of Holiday Club, um, uh, it's your first time with us, or if you just weren't here last week, just a reminder that in this series we are looking at the seven annual festivals that God gave his people in the Old Testament to, to celebrate, to enjoy. And we're going to spend one week looking at each of these festivals Now, again, we might wonder, well, how can that be relevant for us Uh, if we are Christians thousands of years later? Well, do you remember we did look at these um, verses last week from the Apostle Paul, if I can have that one back up now. 
where Paul writes, uh, therefore, whether it's there or not, you can listen, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regards to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You see that the festivals, those Old Testament festivals, are relevant because they lead us to Christ. They're like a a shadow, whereas the reality, the fulfillment, the substance is in Jesus. So as we look at these festivals, we're actually going to see Jesus. And so each week, as I said, we're going to want to do these kind of four steps. So we're going to firstly want to look at, well, where did that festival come from? How did it originate? Then how did the Jews celebrate it? And once we've understood that rightly, well, then we can see how it points and leads us to Jesus. And then finally, how uh, it might impact us, uh, even as Christians. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread. If you've got Leviticus there in front of you, we're going to start there very briefly, and then we're going to jump on. Firstly, Leviticus, what does Leviticus 23 tell us about the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Well, firstly, just notice the close connection with the Passover. It starts the very next day. So the 14th day of the month was the Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread starts the very next day, the 15th day. And although they are indeed separate festivals, uh, throughout Bible times, they they become increasingly connected together. So by the New Testament, in fact, um, that they're kind of almost joined in as one, and you could use either title to describe the two as a whole. But for this feast, they're for seven days to eat unleavened bread. Anyone eaten unleavened bread before? No? Well, you got your chance afterwards. Here we go. This is some unleavened bread, uh, kosher for Passover. So this is like the, the real thing. So it, you see it there, it's more like a cracker than, um, than bread. But if you'd like to try it, I'm going to leave it there. Come grab some at the end. Feast of unleavened bread. There are to eat unleavened bread. Although I didn't see anyone put their hand up, actually, you almost certainly will have eaten unleavened bread. Because unleavened bread just means any bread made without yeast or another rising agent. So if you've had roti or pita bread or tortilla, you've had unleavened bread. But so seven days to only eat unleavened bread, as in only bread without leaven. And it starts and it ends. Again, we can see Leviticus with uh, this, uh, the, these rest days, this day where they were to do no ordinary work. You see that in verse 7. And also in verse 8, we see that there was to be this daily offering uh, each day of sacrifice to the Lord. So seven days eating no leavened bread. Come to Deuteronomy 16. We're going to spend a bit more time there. Uh, just a reminder, that's on page 191. 191. Uh, don't worry about the reading there. Could I have my first heading up, please? And I want us to see that the first, uh, the first point of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is that it is about remembering redemption. Remembering redemption. This is very similar to what we saw last week with the Passover. Uh, And it's perhaps not surprising, given the close connection between the two. And they have their their roots in the same event. Do you remember the Passover was about God's people being kept safe from judgment and being set free from slavery? 
So do you remember Pharaoh, Egypt? They'd enslaved Israel, God's firstborn son, and oppressed them horrendously. And God had repeated, through Moses, repeatedly said, let my people go. Pharaoh stubbornly said, no. And so the last plague was the death of the firstborn. Firstborn for a firstborn. But God's people were to sacrifice that lamb and paint its blood on the doorframe. And they were kept safe from judgment. And also that was to celebrate them being set free from slavery. Whereas the Passover has a, a bigger focus on the being safe from judgment side. The Feast of Unleavened Bread has a greater focus on that being set free point of view. And we see that particularly in verse 3. So Deuteronomy 16, look verse 3. You shall eat no leavened bread with it, with the Passover lamb. For, for seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is to remind the people of leaving the land of Egypt, being set free from slavery. But why eat unleavened bread? Well, verse 3 explains it there again, doesn't it? Do you remember they were to leave in haste? And so the reason they ate unleavened bread was, was they didn't have time to make bread with leaven. I bought myself a, um, a bread maker for Christmas. Yeah, and the, the two kind of main function, like standard bread, you've got the normal one, it takes four hours. You can do a rapid one, which takes two hours, and you've got to double the amount of yeast in order to get it to rise in time. So, so yeast takes time to work. And on that night, they didn't have that time because they were getting ready to leave Egypt, to leave slavery. And so with the Passover lamb, they were to eat bread with no leaven, with no yeast. And so, through the generations, as God's people ate the unleavened bread for those seven days, they were remembering how God had brought them out of Egypt, how God had redeemed them, how he'd set them free from slavery, how, how the redeemed them, that, that price of the lamb had been paid in order to release them, to set them free. Now, in Deuteronomy, the way that the people were to celebrate that festival changed. Because as God's people were journeying to the promised land, they would celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread in their houses, with their family, in their clans. But Deuteronomy looks forward to a change of times. Have a look down at verse 5. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it, that you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt, and you shall cook it and eat at the place the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. That's probably like the, the temporary um, places they were staying in Jerusalem. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work in on it. So from then on, this wasn't a, a thing of convenience. No, the God's people were to follow it as God had commanded. 
which meant going to Jerusalem. The, the, the word in Leviticus was that holy convocation. Or you see in verse 8, um, we're reminded of that solemn assembly. This was a gathering of the people in Jerusalem. So God had fixed this time once a year when the people would journey to Jerusalem to gather together to remember redemption. Remember how God had set them free from slavery. And God, in setting out this cycle, reminds us now of the importance of doing the same thing, of remembering redemption. Why do we need that? Well, we are prone to forget. We're prone to forget. We need to remember the the bitterness of that slavery, that lostness that we've been saved from. Because only then can we truly appreciate redemption. Because do you remember that, 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 that of God's people being in slavery in Egypt is, is a picture of all people being in slavery to an even worse taskmaster, sin. Naturally, the Bible says we are all enslaved to sin. That is, we are under its power. We can't help but sin. But... As we remember that slavery, well, we remember that the price was paid. The Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, has been sacrificed. And we remember how he sets us free from sin in order that we might live for him. And again, the, the, the main way, the main way that God has helped us, given us to help us to remember that redemption is what we're doing right now the weekly gathering of his people together. Now, yes, we do this daily. We should be doing this daily as we do our quiet times, as we read the Bible and as we pray. But getting together aids that remembering of redemption. As we listen to God's word each week and we hear Jesus preached, we remember redemption. As we do the confession together, as we think about the ways in which we have failed to live distinct lives, Yet we also remember how Jesus, the Passover lamb, has paid for every single one of those sins. And we've been set free in order that we can. It is now possible to live a life pleasing for him. As we say the creed together, we recount these historic truths of Jesus. And perhaps most of all in celebrating the Lord's Supper. As we take the bread and the wine, we remember redemption. It's gathering together to do it. This is the starting point. Uh, Remembering our redemption is the starting point for living our lives distinctly for God. There's there's no amount of good works that we could do in order to be saved. Redemption is something that God does through the Lord Jesus. And then the good works flow out from lives that have been redeemed. See, remembering redemption helps us to stay on that path that our position before God is dependent on Lord Jesus and what he has done. But that is not to say that how we live doesn't matter. I was at a conference uh, a number of years ago and a series of talks was being done by the the theological advisor for the film, The Prince of Egypt. The the next slide up. Anyone seen The the, the Prince of Egypt, the, the, the film? More, more accurate than kind of Christian Bale version, if you've seen that one as well. 
Um, but it tells the story of the, the exodus of the people being set free. Anyway, um, so yeah, the, the guy who was the theological advisor for this film uh, was doing these talks on exodus, unsurprisingly. Um, and he said, doing these things, he said his sole contribution to the film, really, was the final 30 seconds. I don't know how familiar you are with, with this. But the, the, the film doesn't end with the people who have crossed the Red Sea celebrating on the other side with free. That was obviously a huge point, and we see that, but that's not how it ends. The final 30 seconds of the film sees the people heading towards Mount Sinai and seeing Moses coming down with the Ten Commandments that God has given his people for how they should live. You see, God redeemed his people in order that they would live distinctly for him. And so that's our second point uh, as we move on. If we next heading, cleanse the crumbs. The Feast of Unleavened Bread rem- helps us to remember redemption and to cleanse the crumbs. I'll explain what we mean as I go through. But firstly, did you notice the, the, the strict instructions that surround the Feast of Unleavened Bread? See, not only were they not to eat of any bread with leaven. Have a look at verse 4 of Deuteronomy 16. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain until remain all night until morning. You see that? Look, not only should you not eat anyway, anyway, it shouldn't be seen. You've got to get rid of it all. And get this, from Exodus 12 that we looked at last week, um, it says, On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Seriously strict. Get rid of it. And so this feast required preparation. Now the people had to root around and rummage around their, their houses, their tents, their, their shops. Don't know what the cafe culture was like in, in ancient Israel, but anywhere, they had to get rid of it all. And, and today, Jews do the same thing. And they hold this. At least they get it out of their house. So I had a quick rummage. So, well, actually, no, we'll start with these ones. Right, yeast, obviously, that's got to go. That's my bread maker. Yeast has got to go. Uh, bicarbonate of soda. Baking powder, they've all got to go. Uh, croissants, go. Breadsticks, go. Cheerios, Cheerios have got to go. Outrageous. And if any of you have toddlers, you will know how hard it is to get rid of every Cheerio in your house. Okay? It is nigh on impossible. And so the Jews celebrating this, it's, it's a veritable spring clean. And it's quite nice that some of the things they do, they turn it into a game. You know, we might have an Easter egg hunt. They'll hide like 10 slices of bread around the house. And children have to go and find the bread. And they put it in the be- bread, uh, a bag. And then they would burn that bag as that symbolism. It was, would mean to go through all the cupboards, to go under the sofa cushion, to clean out your pockets. And get this. If you thought the, the, um, the Cheerios was hard, get out every crumb from your toaster. That is impossible. But those were the kind of things that they, they would do to celebrate. It was serious. It was find them all and get rid of it. But here's the thing about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Jewish people understood it and understand it. The Jews who celebrate this today understand it to not just be about cleaning out the house. It is a cleaning out of the heart. Cleaning out of the 
house, but also a cleaning out of the heart. You see, this is not simply a ritual that they had to do. It was symbolic. It is symbolic. Leaven or, or yeast has become a, became a common metaphor for, for corrupting influence of sin. So, so the word yeast is, is kind of almost equivalent to, to sin. And so, again, for Jewish people celebrating the feast nowadays, it, it's not just clear out the house, it's clear out the heart. As they were busy rummaging around trying to get rid of the yeast, so they were thinking and praying, Lord, get rid of the, the crumbs of sin in my heart too. Because God's people have been redeemed in order to live radically distinctive lives for him. Uh, and that link between yeast and sin is carried through into the New Testament. If I can have the next couple of verses up there. <coughs> Excuse me. We, uh, firstly, we see in Galatians 5, a, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. The description of sin, that sin that is left, and, and it, it corrupts, it goes through. And likewise, the next one, please. Jesus himself says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees the religious leaders and their sinful attitude against God. He says, beware of it. And so as we think about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, well, we don't have to clear out our houses. These are all going back. But we are encouraged to clear out our hearts, to, to examine them, and, and to clear them out as radically as we can, is to, to live those radically distinctive lives. Okay, you, you may be thinking, okay, that's, that sounds interesting, but hang on, isn't this just based on a Jewish tradition? Well, the Bible interprets the Bible. That's one of the key things for understanding how we read the Bible. The Bible interprets the Bible. So I want us to turn to now that final reading that I put on our sheets, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul's writing to church in Corinth. The church is a mess uh, for all manner of reasons. But the, the one particularly in mind in chapter 5 is <coughs> this, this horrific um, case of, of sexual immorality. You have a man who is sleeping with his father's wife. Um, so presumably his, his stepmom. And the church there is not just kind of ex uh, letting it go on. No, they're, they're actually accepting it and almost celebrating it. Say, well, as a sign of our freedom, because we've been forgiven so much by the grace of the Lord Jesus, well, we can even do things like that. They were thinking, well, having been redeemed by Jesus, we're free to do whatever we want them to do. And Paul writes, no, no, kick this man out. Kick this man out of the church. Now, don't, don't miss this, though, with the purpose that they would be restored. You kick them out to say, actually... From all we can see, you're, you're, you're not a Christian. You're not actually trusting in Christ. And by that very bold and strong action, your, your hope is that they will see their error of their ways and they'll be brought to repentance and you can bring them back in. But that's where we come to. Let, look down to verse 6 where we'll start. <clears throat> and you see here, Paul again starts by, with this, uh, by speaking of leaven. Your boasting in this matter, your boasting is not good. 
Do you not know that a little, lev little leaven leavens the whole lump? Again, any done any baking, you know that. A little bit of yeast, a little bit of leaven, it, it permeates through. And he carries on the metaphor, verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. So he says, cl cleanse out the leaven, get rid of sin. And then you see how in verse 8 he links us with the, the festival, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Malice, evil, is to be done away with and be replaced with sincerity and truth. Cleanse out the leaven. Cleanse out the crumbs. Cleanse out sin. And we see why in verse 7. We get two great reasons why it is we should do this. First thing, again, what I've already read. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. He says, look, you are new. You have been made pure. You have had your sin removed. Live that way. You are unleavened. You are, have been set free. You have been made clean. Live that way. And goes on, verse seven, uh, carries on verse 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The Passover lamb, Jesus, has been sacrificed. It is he who makes us pure. But we can't make ourselves pure any more than you can get rid of all those crumbs in your toaster. Yet he is the one who makes pure. And again, think about that Last Supper. We're, we're familiar with Jesus saying that, that this is the bread, um, bread, this is my body, the wine, this is my blood. But what bread would he have held out? Unleavened bread. He held out the unleavened bread and said, this is my body. Jesus, the ultimately and only totally pure one. He says, this is my body given for you. Look, this, this doing away of sin, this doesn't get us into God's people, and it's not us, about us keeping our place in God's people, but it's as the result of being redeemed, we are called to cleanse out the crumbs, to live this radically different life. Again, maybe today you, you need to uh, cr cleanse the crumbs out of your hearts. Maybe it's worth just spending some time running through the different areas of your life. Again, you, the way you're using your time, the things you're watching on TV or listening to or reading, the way you're using your money, your thought life. Are, are there areas where, where yeast is being allowed to fester? I think it's too easy to tolerate sin, a little sin in our life. It's only a little bit. We hear the warning from what we've seen today, a little yeast spreads. Get rid of it. And not as um, some Jews uh, do today. You know, they, they kind of go through the houses, they load it all up, they stick it in a box, and what do they do with it? They take it to the shed. Celebrate for a week, and then bring it back again. Again, we need to have that same ruthless attitude that is called to here. Get rid of it. Have none of it in your territory. Maybe when you're next doing some cleaning... I mean this. Next time you're doing some cleaning, why not, as you're doing that, be praying? Lord, are there areas in my heart, maybe that I'm not even aware of, 
where I need your grace, I need your help to, ch to change. Help me to do so. Now, and as we do so ourselves individually, the emphasis in 1 Corinthians, it really is the church as a whole. You know, we tend to think of our sin as just happening in isolation, it's a me thing. Actually, we see so much of sin as actually done in the context of other people and in relationships. And the danger here in Corinth is that this little bit of yeast in this one case is going to spread through. And so there is a time when what's called church discipline is right and good. Now, it's not that like any sin we commit and then we're going to be kicked out, right? I'd be the first one out the door. But blatant, unrepentant sin must not be allowed to fester amongst God's people because it can contaminate the whole batch. Now, other places in the Bible talk about how this kind of process might work. It is slow. It is loving. It is step by step with the purpose of restoration. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread again reminds us of the importance of cleansing out the crumbs of sin in our own lives, but also together as a church family, as a body. Let's have the, the final slide there. Again, coming back to this picture, how is it that we stay on the path? As Christians living radically distinct lives with right motivation, well, the Feast of Unleavened Bread helps us. We remember redemption. We remember that we've been set free. And that, that guards us from thinking that our own performance is what, is what um, keeps us in God's right standing. We remember that it's because we've been redeemed, because we've been set free, that we are able to live for him. Equally, we are called to cleanse out the crumbs. Sin does matter. It shouldn't be left to fester. But Jesus' redeeming work frees us, enables us to do that. So cleanse out the yeast. And if we do those two things, it's going to keep us living that radically distinct life, radically distinctive lives that God calls us to. Let's just spend a minute. Let's have a minute's quiet. Thinking, praying, asking God to show you where there are areas and to strengthen you to change them. And then I'll lead us in prayer in just a minute or so. Father, we praise you that the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Thank you for the Lord Jesus' work in keeping us safe from judgment and setting us free from sin. Please would you help us live as we are. Help us to live that free life, radically and totally committed to you. Father, where there are areas in our lives where we are tolerating sin, as a church, if our areas, please, Father, reveal them to us, that we would cleanse the crumbs 
and live for you in all things. Please strengthen us and enable us to do that, we pray by uh, your grace and the Lord Jesus, in his name. Amen.